Welcome to Listen and Connect, the Broccoli Community Church podcast. We're a group of Christians who meet in South East London and try to live in a way that reflects the love and teaching of Jesus. We hope that as you listen to this talk, it will help you to connect with God. And if you want to find out more about us and what we believe, head over to www.broccolichurch.london. Thanks for listening. good to uh, to mix things up a bit um, it's good to sort of well for me it makes me focus a bit differently rather than just being in a normal pattern of all oh, right well this happens and then this happens and etc so um, thank thanks Andy for for shifting things around helps us to to focus differently uh, a couple of weeks ago I was in Burundi um, uh, a new experience for me, I was speaking through an interpreter, so I was on stage for a whole hour and didn't have to apologize for being there for an hour. Um, and I think that what the guy, sort of like how he interpreted it, was what I wanted him to say. I have to trust him on that. But um, it was lovely to be with Alison and Paul um, and to live life with them for a few days and uh, see the challenges that they have and the people that they're working with um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, really lovely. I've got a video to play um, sort of at the end of the service um, from them, and uh, also from uh, the guy that leads their church as well. So uh, more of that uh, in a while. Um, I brought a couple of visitors back with me. Um, customs didn't pick up on them because they weren't fully developed by the time I had uh, gone through customs. I managed to pick up a couple of... Uh, parasitic larvae, yeah. Um, which uh, so on either side I have some scars and uh, I've been on antibiotics. So just to put you at ease as I start my talk, <laughs> suffice to say that um, you know Joe wasn't too keen on giving me hugs for a few days. Anyway. Matthew 5, 27 to 32. We're actually hopping back um, in the Sermon on the Mount because we postponed this uh, in, from the autumn, not because it was a topic that we didn't want to cover, but because we wanted to make space um, for the uh, morning that we had around the environment. Um, so uh, that's why it feels like it's a bit out of, out of uh, sequence, but nonetheless it's still an important uh, subject to look at. So I come to this talk with some trepidation, and uh, if you'll permit me, I'll lay my cards out on the table at the start. I'm a happily married man, so I don't have recent or in some cases any experience of how these passages might impact you if you are single, if you're a woman, or divorced. And if you're a married man, your experience will be different to mine, I expect. So please give me grace as I speak. Ask the Holy Spirit to do the work of interpreting what I say 
in a way that is relevant and helpful to you, whatever your current situation. And if I... If I say something that offends or upsets you, through ignorance or miscommunication, please let me know. My relationship with each one of you is far more important than delivering a good talk. Lord Jesus, help each one of us to hear what you say through these passages that in history have been taken and used wrongly and hurtfully and destructively. And help us to see the love and the grace that there was in your eyes as you spoke the words in the first time. Help us to know your love for us, your acceptance of who we are, and your standing with us in the situations in which we find ourselves day by day. Ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about heart attitude and then playing it out in our day-to-day lives. He takes something of the law that traditionally would be taught as an external, observable behavior and encourages, encourages us to think about what's going on on the inside and then how does that affect our behavior. These two passages and the one that follows them follow the same pattern. So the title um, is Love, Don't Lust, Honor, Don't Oppress and it's from Matthew 5, 27 to 32. And I'll read the scriptures as we go. You've heard it said... You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell or Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body and for your whole body to go into hell. Love, don't lust. So the outward action that Jesus was talking about here was adultery. Something that happened and still happens. The walking away or the moving towards another when you're already in a committed lifelong relationship of marriage. And it's destructive. That outward behavior causes all sorts of uh, havoc and pain and hurt that can take years and years to repair and sometimes never quite fully restores. When Jesus said, you've heard it said, and used one sentence, the listeners... Um, would have known the Torah and they would have known the the whole passage that that was taken from and they would have uh, would have understood it Um, and I'll, I'll talk about that a bit later but the inward heart that Jesus then quickly moves on to in this part of the passage is lust 
And lust is a, an instant action. But what compounds it is when we revisit it and we go to it again. So the, there's a, um, a psychosensual reaction when you see someone who is attractive or beautiful that immediately appreciates the creation. But what Jesus is talking about here is the temptation to take another look and maybe another one. Or maybe to use our God-given imagination to go to places where we shouldn't be going with that individual, with that image, with that situation. So the sin that Jesus is, is addressing is acting on the lust. To look again, to allow our thoughts to go to a different level of engagement. And then he ta- starts to talk about acting radically. It's genuinely considered that Jesus didn't actually mean to gouge your eye out or to cut your arm off. But it was figurative in the same way that he's used other sort of examples in, in other parts of the Sermon on the Mount. That it, you have to act radically if you're going to overcome the temptation of lust. It's an, a storytelling way of exaggerating just how seriously Jesus was about the heart attitude and how we deal with that in our lives. Men in general, and I am going to have to speak generally because if I start speaking about specifics, it will get very personal and that, will, that can be hurtful. So men in general find this more difficult in a visual sense. The physical appeal of another that goes beyond the initial psychosensual reaction to someone who is beautiful to you. I've spoken before about how um, in the past when I was traveling into school, when I was teaching, this is not when I was a, not when I was a student, um, and uh, I was on a, on a train and particularly in the summer months, I would be surrounded by lots of women going to work in very attractive outfits um, and often in the summer you know, there's less clothing than there was in the winter where they were all wrapped up in huge coats. And I had to, I, I took the practice of getting on the train by the door and turning and facing out of the carriage with a book. And that's what I did every, every morning, every evening to and from school as a way of dealing with how that uh, visual stuff affects me. Women in general find uh, lust more difficult in a sense of ideals in terms of the characteristics or depth of relationship that might be possible with someone else and sort of layer stuff uh, onto another with, well, I wonder if they would be like this or I wonder if they would be like that. And it's not to say that, the, that each can't be tempted in the other way. But the research and the investigations, etc., would suggest that those tend to be generally how men and women are tempted in terms of lust, in terms of where they go with their imagination from a particular situation. 
And Jesus is saying that neither of those is a right thing to do. Where it fits into current culture, if you like, where, where we can bring it into, is that what Jesus is addressing here is the objectification of another for our own satisfaction, often but not always in a sexual way. With lust, there's no intention to engage in a meaningful relationship. The other person knows nothing of our internal mental process or how we allow it to affect our hormonal response or our imagination. The pursuit, in a lustful sense, is to satisfy our own need and doesn't consider the other in any meaningful, loving way. We cease to recognize the created person as someone in their own right and see them simply as a way of living out our own means or desires. So the second, third or fourth dwelling, the lingering look, the returning to a particular TV program or film or even a scene within it, the visit to a pornographic website or publication, they're all lustful acts that damage our souls, destroy intimacy, set unrealistic expectations in our minds and our hearts and create a dangerous barrier between us and the significant people in our lives and also between us and Father God because it's not usually something that we'd be happy to talk about with those we love or with God. An example was once given of if you had a megaphone on your head that transmitted all of the thoughts that went on in your head as you walked down the street, how many of us would be reaching for the mute button within a millisecond of stepping out of the door? I know that I would. It's something that can remain hidden. It can start to cause a festering wound even before we come into relationships with others and can then play out in destructive ways within those relationships, whether already in place or yet to be formed. And that's why Jesus said we have to take radical action when we become aware of it. Take captive that thought of what it might, like, might be like to be in another's embrace. Turn off or don't watch the film that says it contains scenes of an explicit sexual nature. Put things in place to prevent or dissuade you from visiting unhelpful websites. Make yourself accountable to someone else for what's going on in your thought life. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you your areas of weakness or significant temptation and to help you to choose to act differently. As I said at the beginning, I, I approach it with approach this talk with trepidation because I know that this is can come across as uh, you know I'm speaking from a place of wonderful purity and loveliness and I'm not so hear me listen with grace and hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to you about this Mike Pellavarchi tells a story at Soul Survivor of how he once had a chocolate cake 
in his fridge. If you've been to Dog Survivor for more than one year, you will probably remember this. Um, and he talks about how he put it in the fridge and he went to bed and he was lying in bed and he thought, Maybe I'll just go and I'll just go and have a look at it. And he goes down to the kitchen and puts his hand on the door and thinks, shall I? Shan't I? I won't tell the whole story. But it ends with him sitting on the floor of the kitchen, having gorged himself on the cake. No more cake in the fridge. Mess all around him. And his his, his one-liner, if you like, from the message is, don't open the fridge. Don't go there. If you know that something is a lustful temptation to you, do your utmost damnedest effort to not open the fridge. It will hurt. It will be hard. It will be difficult. It will come time and time and time again. But don't open the fridge. If you do, there is grace abundant. But the encouragement that Jesus gives us is don't open the fridge. Act radically around those things. So two passages within the same section. And there's actually a third one. I'm not sure why I didn't link it into this, which is where Jesus talks about oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But actually all three of them run together in a way that um, is helpful. So it's been said, that phrase again, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that, that uh, first sentence, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife, etc., is, uh, would have led the listeners into a passage from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, which is this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her, her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house... And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. It's not a command. That passage is not a command. It's case law. And what, on one hand, it's, it's been interpreted and been taken in the past to be um, uh, a, or tried to be made into reasons for divorce being okay and, and all of that. What it isn't is that. What it, it's not the, about the rights and wrongs of divorce or what God thinks about it. It's actually there to show how to guard against the oppression of women in the ancient Near East. 
the law in many cultures at that time said that a husband could, not, could divorce his wife for pretty much any reason and then reclaim his wife up to five years after divorce like she's property. Just a thing to be done with or done to. But Moses in this, little, in this passage is saying that's not okay, that's not what God's about. So the husband must give her a document that showed that she was free to marry. Otherwise, she'd, be, she'd end up on the street in poverty or prostitution. And she wasn't just an object to be passed around and reclaimed according to the whim of a man. Divorce in those days was much, uh, much, much simpler. There wasn't a legal process. Basically, uh, it could be, uh, you know, I found this out about you. You're not going to be my wife anymore. Off you go. And so the opportunity for oppression and for uh, mistreating women just as things to be uh, used and abused was prevalent. And what, what Moses was saying, what God was saying through Moses was, my people don't treat people like that. My people treat them differently. So Jesus was saying that if a man divorced a woman just because they didn't please him anymore, sorry, I've missed a bit out. Um, So in that phrase, um, in that scripture, it says something indecent. Um, In the in the scripture, said something indecent or uh, yeah, because he finds something indecent about her. That phrase is is somewhat ambiguous, Um, but the context of that passage means having an affair. And the reason why Jesus was speaking about this particular passage is because at that time, there, or pre, just previous to Jesus, there had been a rabbi who'd been going around saying, well, it could, any reason whatsoever. He was trying to resurrect the idea that, uh, that men could divorce their wives even if they burnt the toast, for instance. If they'd done, you know, if the dish that they'd served up had not been that great. Um, and Jesus was saying, what are you on? That is not what it's about. Marriage is a, a lifelong commitment, and when it, when it doesn't continue, that's a serious thing. And if, it does conti- if, it does, if divorce does happen, then both people need to be treated with honor and respect. So Jesus was reinforcing that adultery is the basis for divorce according to the Torah, on the part of the man or the woman. But particularly the woman should not be seen as an object to be discarded when just because they no longer fitted a particular view of what is useful or attractive. And again, that sense of objectification within relationships that removes the character and personality of the individual simply makes them a vessel for the other's satisfaction comes back. So Matthew 19 is where Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees about divorce and he talks about it a bit more length than this. But what Jesus is speaking about here and in that passage is against a lustful throwaway society and an easy divorce culture that favoured men over women. Unfortunately it's possible, possibly just as true today as it was then. 
Jesus was championing, championing commitment over discarding unwanted goods. He was reinforcing the teaching of the Torah that marriage is a lifelong commitment, covenant, that breaks down in extreme circumstance, not just at the whim of you didn't cook my toast properly. But above all, in both sections of the passage, he was extolling love as the way to live in relationship. And he followed with that passage, as I said, on let your yes be yes and your no be no, emphasizing the need to be open and honest in our dealings with one another. So I'll finish by reading this passage from 1 Corinthians. Because I think that this is how God loves us and how he wants us to love others. If in all our dealings with others, whether real or in our imaginations, we do so with these words as our guideline, I think it will help us to be challenged on whether our thoughts or actions are lustful rather than loving, oppressive rather than honoring. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Thank you, Jesus, that your way is the way of love. Thank you, Jesus, that whatever our life circumstance, whatever our life experience, we can know the boundless depths of your love for us. Help us with this passage and with all of the Sermon on the Mount to know what it means to live our lives in an upside-down fashion. That goes against the culture of disposing relationships because they just don't satisfy us anymore. Of looking on another simply as an object to satisfy our imagination or our need in a different way. Jesus, you looked on people with true, pure love. You saw in them all that the Father had created them to be. And you look to the Father for the fulfillment of who you were. Let us follow your model. Let us follow your practice, your example, to look to you, Father, for the completion of who we are. And to look, to, look at others through your eyes of love, of respect, of admiration. to see your kingdom come and your will be done in our day-to-day -day relationships and encounters. Ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Whatever you're doing, just take a moment and reflect on what you've heard and ask God to show you something to take away from it to help you follow him. And if you're ever in the area on a Sunday, you're really welcome to come and join us from 10.30 at Beecroft Garden School.